0: Hello and welcome to the Rules of the Game podcast, where it is my job to discuss democratic institutions. What most people think of when they hear deliberative democracy probably are citizens' assemblies. Deliberation is the process of thoughtfully discussing a specific topic, weighing different options, and using logic and reason to form opinions within a group that then may lead to a decision or a consensus. With Ian of Flynn, I discuss various forms of deliberative democracy, from parliaments to deliberative polls, to citizens' juries and the most well-known citizens' assemblies. Deliberative democracy was first discussed in the context of representative democracy, our parliaments. Yet, more recent concepts of deliberative democracy have been developed by political scientists that are best summarized as mini-publics. The most common characteristic of mini-publics is that participants are selected based on sortition, that is a random selection of people from the entire population. The randomly selected people then come together to deliberate and possibly make recommendations to the government. Ian has conducted extensive research both on deliberative and participatory democracy. He explains the various challenges and opportunities of mini-publics and how they can fit in the wider context of democracy. Mini-publics may likely further develop as an institution of modern democracies, complementing representative and direct democracy. Ian O'Flynn is a senior lecturer in political theory at Newcastle University and he holds a PhD from the Queen's University in Belfast. His main research interests are in deliberative democracy, but he also works on compromise, power sharing and referendums. He has written several books, the most recent ones titled Deliberative Democracy and Deliberative Peace Referendums i link to his website and to his Twitter account in the show notes. I am your host, Stefan Kriburz, and this is the 22nd episode of the Rules of the Game podcast. I am a political economist with a PhD in economics from the University of Bern in Switzerland. And I previously held positions at the London School of Economics and Political Science and the Center for Global Development you find a full transcript of this episode on my website, rulesofthegame.blog. I am always curious to hear your opinion, so just send me an email to stefan.kybirds at gmail.com. And please leave a review and share this episode with friends and colleagues. Now, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Ian O'Flynn. Ian O'Flynn, welcome to the Rules of the Game podcast. I'm um, very happy to have you on the show.
1: It's it's a, a, my pleasure. Really looking forward to talking today, Stephen.
0: My first question as always is what is your first memory of democracy?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a really good question actually. I uh, I don't know if it's my first memory of democracy, but I guess my first real kind of pronounced or strong memory, I think, is probably the the Belfast Agreement of 1998 and the referendum around that. I mean, I should say that I'm from Ireland originally. I've lived in the UK for, uh, I guess, over 20 years. I'm from Ireland originally, and I guess my first memory of democracy might be something like the 1983 abortion referendum. I mean, that was a very interesting one in Ireland. It really was, I think it was held so that the, in a way, that social Catholicism could reassert itself in Ireland. I don't have a great memory of it. Uh, I would have been about 15, 16 at the time. I don't have a great memory of it, but I knew that something very, very important was happening. I guess my first clear memory of something very, uh, a really kind of... um, a really important democratic moment when I had a clear sense of what was going on was probably the Belfast Agreement in 1998 referendum. I mean, it was passed by 90-odd percent in the south of Ireland and by about 70% or so in Northern Ireland. I mean, it was a hugely significant event because it was a mass statement to the effect that, look, we've had enough of this conflict. 30 years, over 3,000 people dead. For democracy, through a referendum, the signal, we've had enough. We want peace. We want power sharing. I mean, this was an incredibly powerful, important moment, I think. So it's not my earliest memory, but I think it is the one that to this day continues to stand out. in My mind as perhaps certainly the part of, world, of the world that I'm from, probably the most significant memory that I have of mm-hmm. democracy in action.
0: And was that significance and that that power that you felt and also that decision by the people... Did that influence that you later on started studying uh, direct democracy and deliberative democracy and also to do research? You have written a bunch of books about these topics and a lot of journal articles. So was that really the starting point of that journey? Maybe, I think it
1: was part of it. I think. So, when I left school originally, I studied music. I had these ideas I wanted to be a musician. And in my mid 20s, actually, I went back to university and did a degree in philosophy. And that kind of morphed into an MA in political philosophy. And I became particularly interested in the works of Jurgen Habermas. So, that's really how I came to deliberative democracy. So, that was around that time. Then I went to Queen's in Belfast to do a PhD in political theory, again on deliberative democracy, although this time on multiculturalism. And what was interesting, I remember when I was having my Viva, it was, my PhD was examined by Albert Wheel, a very well-known, highly respected uh, British uh, political theorist. And he asked me at the end of all of this, so this was about 2001, 2002, so again, we're already a couple of years past it. And Albert asked me, he said, you know, why are you writing about deliberative democracy and multiculturalism when you live in a deeply divided society? Why aren't you doing something around, well, deliberative democracy and deeply divided societies? Why aren't you doing that? It seems so obvious. Because, of course, there were many people writing on deliberative democracy and multiculturalism. But at the time, pretty much nobody was working on the prospects or implications of deliberative theory in particular. For for example, thinking about institutional design, for example, thinking about how power sharing or referendums or whatever how institutions could be guided, institutions and divided societies could be guided by deliberative norms. Nobody was really doing that kind of work. And to be honest, despite the fact that I was living in Belfast during this hugely, well, I guess it was an upheaval, but a positive upheaval, I guess, with lots of bumps along the way. And yet, in a way, it never occurred to me. It was only at my PhD, Viva, when Albert Wheel asked me why I wasn't doing this work, that I kind of stopped and said, you know what, you've got a point. Why aren't I doing this kind of work? So at that point, I went to Essex, which is a very good politics department, actually, uh, to do a postdoc with Albert. And I decided I would start all over again. So I wrote my first book when I was there that year on deliberative democracy in divided societies. That was really the start of, of my work. And of course, I guess things like being there just after the Belfast Agreement, seeing Clinton, for example, come to speak, these things, you know, turned out to be far more, I didn't realize it at the time, but they turned out to be far more kind of intellectually stimulating than I imagined they actually were. It was a fabulous, it's, it's an odd word to use, given that I'm talking about a conflict society, but it was a fabulously exciting time to be in Northern Ireland I mean I'm not from Northern Ireland I'm from Cork in the south of Ireland but it really was a fabulous time exciting time to be there and as I say I got lucky I had someone to ask me the question why aren't you doing this work and it really was like a lot of there's a lot of kind of I guess serendipity about these kind of things it was just you know fortuitous just accidental that somebody came and asked me this question and I said okay I'll do that and uh, so that's really how it started. A series of accidents, to tell you the truth. And, uh, and it took somebody to ask the question.
0: And since then, obviously, you, you took the question very seriously. You asked yourself uh, a lot of questions about uh, deliberative democracy, participatory democracy and all the different institutions that are are building that type of of democracy. And so I think what people who haven't heard a lot about deliberative democracy, what people maybe more likely have heard about are citizen assemblies or also uh, deliberative polls. So can you maybe give a bit of an overview, you know, about citizen assemblies, deliberative polls, and maybe what are, are kind of the characteristics and the differences and how that relates to deliberative democracy? And maybe you want to start with deliberative democracy itself. Uh, I'll leave that up to you.
1: That, that's an absolutely great, it's a huge question, but it's a great question. But I think it's also a very, very important question. Because one of the things that's happened nowadays, I think, is that people readily equate deliberative democracy with citizens' assemblies. In fact, they reduce deliberative democracy to citizens' assemblies and they tend to use them interchangeably. Now, I I should say that's a bit crude. I mean, it is a bit crude to put it that way. But I think certainly, say, for example, if you were doing a quick search around twitter or something of that sort you would imagine that citizens assemblies are exactly the same as deliberative democracy that's not actually the case i mean effectively deliberative democracy is a theory of democratic legitimacy for mass societies it's a theory about what we what we need to have in place what normative or philosophical conditions need to be in place so that we can stand over decisions collectively binding decisions and it essentially says that ultimately decisions are legitimate if really they are the outcome of a process of inclusive deliberation between free and equal citizens. Now that's an ideal, that kind of deliberative principle of legitimacy, the idea that, as I say, decisions are legitimate insofar as they can be seen as the the outcome of a process of inclusive deliberation between free and equal citizens. Now, of course, that's a theory. It's a normative standard that needs to be applied, and it needs to be applied in a context-sensitive sort of way. We know that in modern mass democracy, it's impossible for all citizens to deliberate together in one space. So we need to think about different ways in which pragmatic accommodations, I guess, to reality. If we lived in a small, a small society, for example, at the level of a village or something, yes, we could all sit around as free and equals and decide what we want to do through deliberation. But in modern mass democracies, that's not really possible. And I think it's true to say that at least for people like the kind of, you could call them early deliberative de- Democrats, people like Habermas, for example, Rawls, Joshua Cohen, and so on, they were in the first instance thinking of representative institutions, electoral representative type institutions. So effectively, they're thinking of parliament there is, of course, a long tradition of thinking about deliberative democracy by focusing on parliament. So we think, for example, of John Stuart Mill referring to the British Parliament as a Congress of Opinions. And if you read his descriptions in uh, his, his his work, Considerations on Representative Government, you get a fantastic uh, uh, picture of what a deliberative uh, parliament should look like. We can see it in the works of James Madison. We can see it in many, many different places. So. And I think there's a reason why they focus on representative institutions. And it was simply because, well, we're talking about mass democracies. And in any mass democracy, I think it's inevitable that elective institutions are going to be at the centre. Now, the problem, of course, what's happened is, of course, over time, people are getting frustrated with that. They look at their parliaments, they look at the legislatures and they say, well, you know what? These aren't representative. The voices of marginalised societies are not being represented. They're not being heard within these chambers. We'll see that in many, many sorts of ways. We look at dissatisfaction with legislatures right across the world, falling levels of trust and so on. And so people are beginning to think, they're beginning to ask themselves, how could we get the voices of a diverse range of citizens back into our democratic politics? Now, this really was a question that James Fishkin started to ask in the early 90s. His first book appeared in about 1991. I can't remember the name offhand, something like Democracy and Deliberation or something to that effect, where he began to think about how could we inject a bit more legitimacy, a bit more deliberative legitimacy in particular, into representative politics. And he came up with the idea of a deliberative opinion poll. Now, what is a deliberative opinion poll? Well, effectively, what it is, is you take a random sample of a population you educate them, you give them good, balanced information, and you see where they end up. That's what it is in a nutshell. It really is just society in microcosm. Jim Fishkin wasn't the first, of course, to think of this idea. His own teacher, uh, Robert Dahl, of course, uh, uh, suggested the idea of what he called a mini populus back in 1989 in his book, uh, Democracy and Its Critics. But of course, long before that, people pointed back to the ancient Greeks and the assembly and the Google and, 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 and the rest of it. So it's not a new idea, but certainly from the 90s on, people begin to start to think about, okay, we want our parliaments to be deliberative, but we also want to make space for people also to have their voices. And so Fishkin came along with this idea of a deliberative opinion poll. Now, I should say, of course, people have been doing this anyway in the broader society. Many, many uh, civic organizations have been doing this. Many participatory deliberative Democrats have been doing this for a long time anyway. They haven't necessarily given it a posh name or talked in terms of kind of complicated statistical sampling or anything of that sort. These are not new ideas, but certainly within... Within the academic literature, from about the 90s on, Jim Fishkin comes along, he starts to talk about these mini-publics, and in particular, this idea of a deliberative opinion poll. Now, you may wonder why is he talking about an opinion poll, but the starting point for this was simply to say, look, we have, opi- we have all these opinion polls running all the time, but what they give very often is just top-of-the-head impressions. Somebody stops you in the street, somebody knocks on your door, somebody phones you up and they ask your opinions about various sorts of things. But very often, these are very unreflective. They're not thought through. You may have no information at all, but there's lots of things about opinion polls where, that show that people don't want to come across as being, well, ignorant in the sense of not knowing. So they'll say very often what they think the interviewer wants to say. But that's not much good because we're not getting informed opinions. We're getting top-of-the-head opinions, off-the-cuff, whichever metaphor you want to use. We're getting very unreflective and very often ill-informed or badly informed views reflected in these opinion polls. So what Jim wondered was, could we do opinion polling better? And so what happens in a deliberative poll, somebody contacts you and they ask you to take a survey. So you take an an ordinary opinion survey just as you would. When you finish the opinion survey, what then happens is you're invited to, to take part in a deliberative event over a day or a weekend or something of that sort. If you say yes, you'll be sent balanced briefing materials in the post that you can read over a couple of weeks. And maybe you'll start to talk with people, learn about the issues and so on. Then you turn up on the day. Remember, this is, I should have said this is, of course, a random sample that turns up on the day. You deliberate in small groups and in plenary. You get the chance to question experts and so on. And at the end of the event, you're polled again using exactly the same questionnaire that you took on first contact. And what that means is you get a pre-deliberation opinion poll and you get a post-deliberation opinion poll and you can check to see what happened. Did people shift? Now that is, I think, an absolutely brilliant idea because it really, it's not just any old opinion poll, it's a deliberative opinion poll. It's the views and because it is a random sample, it, it gives us some sense of what the rest of the population what they would have thought if they could have been put through a similar process. So that's what a deliberative opinion poll is. Now, I don't think that uh, I don't think that Jim Fishkin in any of his work has ever suggested that he thinks that, you know, that that uh, opinion polls should substitute for representative democracy. Jim hasn't focused on reforming Parliament or re- legislature so that they might become more deliberative, but he certainly thinks that deliberative opinion polls could play an important role in uh, improving public opinion. It can make a major opinion, sorry, ma- a major contribution to deliberation in the public sphere. But also, ideally, it should be taken up by elected representatives as well as part of their deliberations.
0: So it's really a way also to get more profound opinions by the citizens, right? In that sense, if we just look at deliberative polls.
1: Absolutely. That's what it is. Because, you know, again, it's about legitimacy. You can stand over this and say, look, these aren't just public opinions, they're the opinions of a random sample, hopefully a highly, rep, a highly statistically representative sample of the population that in some sense can stand in for the population. So it tells us a lot about what the population might think under very good conditions. And that's very rare. We obviously can't put the entire population through uh, an experiment of this sort, but we can put a statistically representative Uh, sample through it and it can give us some sense of what the population might have thought under similarly good conditions that's very useful to know that is something that our legislatures uh, that our elected representatives should take seriously it's something our media our uh, our newspapers and so on they should take seriously it's something that the public sphere televisions everything you know we should take this seriously there are large questions, I'm sure you're going to ask me about that in a minute, but where, whether these kinds of mini-publics should have decisional authority, where, whether we should let allow them to decide on our behalf. I don't believe that to be the case. Nevertheless, I think they can play a very, very important role um, in providing a very, very valuable perspective on people's views, people in general's views. That's really important. So, If anyone has been looking at my Twitter feed, they may say I'm very, very critical of these things. I'm not actually, well, I am critical of their use and the way in which they're represented, I think. But I'm not critical of the idea itself, which I think is a very, very valuable one and an important step forward in thinking about how to kind of reinvent, maybe perhaps even resuscitate democracy.
0: That's very interesting. And maybe I can quickly summarize how I see what you just said. So, we, we started with a, a deliberative type of democracy, but among elites, right? Among representative democracy, which were, especially in the early days, I guess, quite a, a small group of society that had a lot of knowledge and that were described by John Stuart Mill or, or Harbour Mars in the sense that we have pretty good deliberation, I guess, in, in, in parliaments. But so the deliberative polls were really an instrument or are an instrument to also inform representative democracy about opinions by the citizens and how a random sample of people, how they process information given to them and how that shapes uh, their opinion. So are citizen assemblies then kind of uh, an evolution of uh, deliberative polls that are more institutionalized? Would you, would you agree with that statement? Or what is the difference then between citizen assemblies and deliberative polls?
1: So what's unique, I think, about a deliberative poll? poll is really the pre-test and post-test questionnaires. Now, basically, there are lots and lots and lots of types of, let's use the word mini-public instead. A deliberative poll is a type of mini-public. Mini-public here is just this idea of microcosmic democracy, this idea of random sampling. Citizens' assembly are a type of mini-public. Citizens' juries are a type of mini-public. There are many, many different kinds. They also overlap in many, many different ways as well. Sometimes it can be hard to tell, you know, which is which. Really, the deliberative poll can usually, ideally would have about about 250 participants or so. Citizens' assemblies tend to be a little bit smaller, maybe around 150, but it just depends on who organises these things. And citizens' juries will have between 20 and 40 around. So much smaller numbers. The bigger the numbers, the better, I think, because you have a better chance of having a statistically representative sample. That's important. The other important thing about this is that citizens' assemblies tend not to, certainly the Irish ones didn't, tend to use a pre-test Uh, questionnaire and a post-test questionnaire. So they're not actually tracking opinion change in that sense. That's important. Traditionally, insofar as there is a tradition, citizens' assemblies tend to run for a very, very long time. If you think back to the British Columbia Citizens' Assembly and electoral reform, that ran over the best part of a year. I think the Irish Citizens' Assemblies have also run around nine months or so, nine months to a year. So they run for a very, very, very long time.
0: With the same Uh, people, right?
1: with the same people, although I should say, certainly in the Irish case, the problem is there are issues around retention. The same people don't turn up necessarily every time, and that's a problem because the idea is that the same people are meant to go through a very long and extensive educative process, but if people drop in and out, you've got, you know, you've got issues. So I should say, we'll probably talk about this in a minute, but although these things are often presented not just as panaceas, but also as kind of perfect institutional designs they're not because of course they have all the problems attaching not all the problems they have they have their own problems so for example one of the problems with the citizens assembly is getting people to turn up over the course of all of this There are many problems attaching to them. There are also lots of problems that we don't know about and that people are beginning to write about. So, for example, with the participants, especially in a citizens' assembly, which runs for a very long time, I should say a deliberative poll or or a citizens' jury would probably only run over a day, a couple of days, a weekend, perhaps maybe a couple of weekends. But the citizens' assemblies run for a very, very long period of time. The difficulty with that, of course, is that it may be that the participants can be got at in some sense by the media, perhaps by vested interests. We don't know a lot about these kinds of questions yet. We're only beginning to feel our way into how they work, how they don't work, and so on. Um, we just don't know. As I say, they're very often presented as these perfect institutionalizations of deliberation. They're not. There are lots and lots of problems attaching to them. So, for example, one of the problems is, so, you know, you get an invite, but the uptake of the invite for for many of these citizens' assemblies is about 5%. So actually the people who agreed to participate in the first place are themselves a very, very small, not just selected, but selective element of society. Of course, they use stratified random sampling to make it look like this looks like the population at large in terms of general characteristic, demographic, and attitudinal characteristics, like gender, educational level, uh, it could, you know these kinds of things. But you know, if you're only getting five percent of a population of those you invite agreeing to participate in the first place, the chances are you're going to be missing quite a lot of people. So these things are not perfect. They can be done more or less well, and I think one of the benefits of a deliberative poll is the size of the sample and the sheer effort they put in to make sure that it really is statistically representative. They don't use stratified random sampling, they go for more scientific, the numbers are bigger, so they go for scientific sampling in that sense. So there are differences, there are overlaps. In a way, I guess citizens' assemblies are the most popular now because they become almost like a brand. We hear about them all the time, climate citizens' assemblies, so so the French uh, citizens assembly on climate the citizens assemblies i mean run you know on climate right across the uk we've had the citizens assembly on the abortion referendum in ireland and so on so but in a way it's probably the case for many people that the term citizens assembly is now substituting for the umbrella term mini public it's just really caught on this idea of citizens assemblies and you can see why it's a great term it's about people coming together a term like deliberative opinion poll people are like to say well, what the hell is that it's not very kind of trendy. It doesn't get too many people excited unless you actually knew what it was. But, you know, anything with the word citizen in it sounds good if you're interested in democracy. So Citizens' Assembly is very, very trendy. It's a type of mini public. It shares much in common with deliberative polls, much in common with Citizens' Assemblies, but or, sorry, citizen juries. But there are lots of subtle differences in the, you know, that may make more or less uh, big differences along the way.
0: It's interesting because in, in Switzerland, I would say the term citizens' assembly is way less known. Political scientists, of course, they have taken up these, these discussions and there is, there is research on those citizens' assemblies. But I think to most people, they're probably less well-known. I think the reason also being that direct democracy is very strong in Switzerland at all levels of government. So even in many municipalities, you have like t- two times a year you have a municipal assembly which is kind of a citizen assembly because anybody can go it's not a, it's not a sortition or a random sample no anybody can go and and vote and decide on issues that uh, affect the municipality. And so I think f- to me, it was always uh, like our municipal assemblies are essentially citizen assemblies, but it's like a full sample, which is kind of an interesting alternative. And sometimes also I have shown some confusion because I said our municipal assemblies are, are our citizen assemblies. So what would be interesting to know is for you, what would be the the optimal implementation of such uh, mini-publics? And where do you really see the limitations, especially in terms of institutionalization? What can they do and what can they not do?
1: Again, I mean, that's a, that's a really important question, a very, tough, a very tough one to answer. So there are a range of different views about what, you know, where they should be located within the broader political system. There are some people on the more extreme end who would like, I think, to, in some sense, replace electoral democracy, electoral representative democracy with citizens' assemblies. Now, I think that's a very bad idea, actually. And one of the reasons I think it's a very, very bad idea is because, really, you're talking about a random sample of a population. Now, if you're sampling a population, the problem is it's a tiny proportion of an overall population. If you have a population like the UK here, 60, 70 million, and you bring together 150 people, now, I don't know, I can't do the maths quickly enough, but what percentage of, of, of 70 million is 150? The fact of the matter is the vast majority of the population will be excluded from participation. So while it is true that they may be statistically representative and inclusive in that sense, in real terms, the fact is far too many people will be excluded. Now, people who advocate that kind of position say, ah, yeah, but it's not just sortition. It's not just a lottery. It's not just a random sample. It's a lottery plus rotation. But the fact of the matter is you would want to hold an awful lot of assemblies to give everyone a go, even once in their lifetime. So I think that is deeply problematic because, you know, democracy means rule by the people. It's about the demos. It is about popular legitimacy. It's about people authorising government to do its thing, whatever form of government. The tricky thing is, if you only have uh, citizens' assemblies the vast majority of people do nothing ever in their lives. They simply wait on their numbers up. It's like waiting to win the lotto. You might win the lotto. You might not win the lotto. But for the vast majority of people, well, you don't win the lottery. You will never be called upon to participate politically. That's a massive problem for all sorts of reasons. It's a massive problem in principle. Why Why would you think that's good for democracy to exclude The vast majority of the people, despite all these claims about statistical representativeness and, you know, how smart people's algorithms are and so on, the fact of the matter is they're highly exclusive, even if you allow for a process of rotation over time. That's really worrisome. It's worrisome in in principle, I think, because it offends key democratic principles of inclusion and equality. I think that's, but it's also very important, I think, from a, a more pragmatic or empirical point of view, because, you know, we want people to feel motivated. We want people to feel a sense of allegiance to their democracies. We want them to feel motivated to carry, to carry the burdens of participating in political life. And of course, this is a very important theme in participatory democracy. If we want people to reciprocate benefits and burdens, which is what you have to do in a democracy. You have to do that freely. Of course, a dictator can simply force you to pay your taxes or do military service, whatever it is. But that's not true, of course, in a democracy. We have to find some other, at least it's not true in principle. We have to find some other motivation. And of course, as participatory Democrats have argued for, well, right back to John Stuart Mill and back to Rousseau, I guess, well beyond that. Political participation, going back to Tocqueville, for example, is, is really a school for democracy. It motivates people to care about the causes that affect us all. The problem is if if you just had if you just institutionalized uh, many public citizens assemblies you really treat ordinary people as a little more than kind of cannon fodder or something of that sort. You feed them into an algorithm every so often and some of them will come out the far end, others won't. That is no good for democracy. It completely, I think, robs democracy of the motiv- motivational basis, the kind of civic spirit and motivation that I think democracy really needs and that I think participatory democracy is, I think, very, very alive to. And of course, you've mentioned Switzerland, these open air Uh, These open-air councils, uh, you've mentioned the long traditions of Swiss use of referendum and so on and so forth, that is much more towards the participatory side of it, where people genuinely feel they can have a say in in the rules under which they have to live. I would find it very offensive to be told, you don't need to do anything. We've got somebody who's like you, who's got, you know, grey hair like you, who, you know, went to the same kind of school as you and so on. It's okay. He will speak on your behalf or she or they, whatever, whatever it is. you, you, You just sit back. It's okay. We've got this covered. That is not democracy in my view. So that was a very long answer. I would like to rule that out. I think that is implausible. I think it'll never happen. I think all the worries about capture and all these other kind of things will kick in. I think we'll have severe problems, really. I think it's a disaster of an idea and I think it's fundamentally undemocratic. That's putting it very strongly, but I think it's a lousy idea. That said, if I may go on, I I don't know, Stephen, if you want to.
0: Yeah, sure. No, I just wanted to quickly say that we have a hard time having representative politicians speaking on our behalf. I mean, at least I sometimes have a hard time because I think like I would know it better or whatever, you know, I should be there, right? I could run for office, of course, but obviously you have the same kind of mechanism that if somebody else would be randomly selected and speaking on your behalf, you're never really satisfied because you want to give your opinion too because your life, your experience, your knowledge you know, is valuable. And I think we should value all that knowledge that is among the population. And those wanna, who want to contribute, those who want to, you know, be creative in providing solutions, they should be allowed to, right? And if we have a, a pure sortition mechanism, then that is clearly not not the case.
1: No, that's an absolute problem, and a, you know, a huge problem. You've mentioned a couple of other things that are very important. It is true, we look at, say, for example, here in Britain, I mean, you look at you look at Westminster, you look at the parliament here, I mean, who do they look like? Well, they certainly do not look like the population at large. Now, should we worry about that? I think we should, for all the reasons that you've said, you know. But however, one of the things that um, well, bugs me about the way, you know, that, uh, so you know, my, my, you know, the theory that I've invested all these years to study, Deliberative Democracy... It's a broad theory, but it can inform not just things like mini-publics or even, say, for example, parliamentary reform. There's some very good work being done at the moment around reform of the committee systems within parliaments or legislatures to make them more deliberative. You know, great work being done here. But I think one area that I think where we haven't done enough work at all, and I think you kind of hinted at this, is around, for example, electoral systems. We want, you know... Certainly in Considerations and Representative Government, that book by John Stuart Mill that I mentioned earlier on, where he talks about Parliament as a Congress of Opinions. He also has a very much of a kind of a descriptive idea of representation in mind. He wants Parliament to look like the society at large. And in the book, he talks a lot about what he calls Mr. Hare's system, Mr. Thomas Hare's system, this electoral system that he thinks Britain needs to adopt. Mr. Hare's system is effectively what today we would call the STV, the Single Transferable Vote Form of Proportional Representation now we have mill calling for a shift to single transferable vote way back in 1861 when he published that book today is 2022 and say for example the electoral society here in britain is still calling for single transferable vote because it is more representative because of the kind of the preferential structure of the ballot is very important because that gives candidates incentive to reach out beyond their own core constituency and so on it makes them talk to other people beyond the people who are always beyond the people who are most likely to vote for them. Because of the preferential nature of the ballot and the way in which it runs through various various rounds, you can't just rely on your own supporters because actually supporters from maybe the moderate middle or from the other side may make a difference to your getting elected or not getting elected. It makes you broaden your appeal, it makes you act more like a deliberative democrat than you otherwise might be so really for me and this kind of answers the other part of your question for me deliberative democratic reform is a package it's a package deal we need to look at how we reform what goes on within our parliaments we need to look at what goes on with our committee systems we need to look what goes on within our electoral systems that elects parliaments Uh, that that elects politicians who are parliaments in the first instance. We need to look at things like uh, funding. We need to look at things like public broadcasting. We need to look at things like public journalism. We need to look at media regulation. And we need to look at citizens' assemblies, what role they could conceivably play in all of this. We need to look at support for referendums, education for referendums. We need to look at the mix between citizens' assemblies and referendums, the so-called citizen initiative review type model, We need to look at support for civil society organisations, more bottom-up approaches. So we want to broaden out inclusion. Now, I should say, somebody we mentioned earlier on, again, there's nothing new in any of all of this. If you think back to, say, Habermas's work, for example, on the public public sphere anchored in the institutions of civil society, Habermas talks about what he terms a two-track model. He distinguishes between strong and weak public. So really, government makes decisions fair enough. But government must be open and porous to contributions from civil society. He thinks that civil society, it shouldn't just be any old public opinion that's generated within civil society. It should be informed public opinion. Now, that's an obvious in for thinking about citizens' assemblies let them contribute to the formation or the formulation of a more informed public opinion, which is then factored into representative decision-making, which in turn must give an account of its decisions to the public. So the whole thing, ideally what we have is a virtuous circle between civil society into government, from government through accountability measures and so on, through publicity and accountability, back into civil society. Jane Mandrich, for example, talks about recursive democracy. And I think she's absolutely right. It's an old idea. Again, it's not a new idea. But it is that sense that we really need the interplay of institutions, uh, uh, both civil institutions and more centralised political institutions. And where deliberative democracy comes into all of this as a grand theory is that it's meant to shape our thinking about the interplay between all of this, this virtuous circle, really how we think about, how we evaluate it, should be in terms of its deliberative quality or capacity. Now, that idea has been given expression, slightly different expression in recent years in the notion of a deliberative system. So we don't look at, say, for example, a citizen's assembly, because as Manjewicz, for example, says, and rightly says, no single institution no matter how well formed, could have sufficient legitimacy to justify decisions that are going to to be binding on everyone in a modern mass democracy. No one institution can do that. It's impossible. Yet some of the assembly folk seem to think it is. It's not. It's crazy. You can't have, that's a silly idea. It is really the whole idea of deliberative democracy, certainly in that kind of, you know, that kind of two-track or systemic view. It's the whole lot together, the interplay between all these different parts of The of the system, assess in terms of the deliberative quality. That's what ultimately generates democratic legitimacy for mass societies. So it's that much broader picture, that picture that I think it's not my idea. I think we've learned more about this as time has gone on. I mean, Habermas, I think, is one of the very first to lay this out. People like John Dryzek have done a huge amount of work developing it, as as have people like Jane Mansbridge and John Parkinson thinking about deliberative systems. So we've been developing this over the last 20, 30 years. What makes it really, really odd and weird then is this shift towards citizens' assemblies. These people coming in and thinking that it's some sort of panacea that can ride to the rescue. It's dubious in practical terms. It's dubious in institutional terms. It's dubious in legitimacy terms. And it's just not terribly democratic. Now, I must say, I think they are a fantastic innovation. I would like to see more of them. I would like us to learn more. I would like to think creatively about where they could be inserted, how we can publicize what they've done, how we think about, we need to think more about what exactly is the democratic character of their legitimacy or the the the, the 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 legitimacy characteristics that they have or don't have, and so on? There's loads of philosophical questions yet to be asked about them. There are loads of practical questions about them, but they are very important. But I think it's crucial that they are seen as but one cog in an integrated system that requires, obviously enough, a systemic view to see how all of this fits together. Now, interestingly enough, the difficulty, of course, is how do you measure this stuff? How do you track this stuff? How do you get a handle on it? These are massive questions. There are some fiddling around the edges. So, for example, my colleague Manuel Ciannelli and, and I, we've we we've sought to use network theory, network analysis, to think about how we can map a system in that sense. But really, understanding this richer Uh, more integrated holistic whatever words you want to use uh, type of deliberative system where it's very much in its infancy we're only beginning to get a handle on it now we're really not too we're not too sure about how is everything going to fit together how do we measure this how do we evaluate it how do we reform it all these kinds of questions there's a lot of head-scratching going on. Not a very good work, I should say. I don't mean to be in any sense uh, patronising and saying that. There's excellent work with some brilliant people doing absolutely great work. But, you know, it's very much in its infancy. We're struggling. But the idea, this idea that Citizens Assembly, we can, we can circumvent all of that. It's just nonsense
0: absolutely mm-hmm. crazy mm-hmm. okay
1: yeah that's, that's a bit strong but never mind no you no i me. appreciate it's appreciate not boring your <laughs> i
0: appreciate your opinion and your your clear uh, words of what they can be and what they cannot be right and you have done so much work and you have built up over years your your own opinion through research and what i'm talking a lot on my podcast is political power and political leverage, right? And the question, how much power and leverage can you actually achieve with um, a mini public? Where are the limits, as you have uh, explained as well? that is. These are very important questions. And in terms of representative democracy, and I think it was also really interesting what you said, that, for example, in Britain, people have been trying to make a parliament more representative of the people, essentially, resembling the population which you only achieve with a more proportional system and this is also a topic I'm constantly talking about uh, on my podcast and also on, on, on Twitter or in any discussions and essentially to me what the relationship between representative and direct democracy or maybe also with you know a deliberative poll could be is that if you have a perfect representation in parliament right you kind of you know, make direct democracy less important because the decision taken in parliament will be resembling the people better. If if representative democracy is really poor, like in the US, I think, for example, at the moment, or also in, in Britain, as, as you said, then direct democracy and deliberative democracy become more important. And there needs to be a check on, on representative democracy. And I think that's also an interesting Idea to think about whether deliberative democracy like a mini public could be a check a type of check on representative democracy, but the question of legitimacy is obviously an important one, and whereas direct democracy has you know achieved really a legitimacy that is is high enough for people to accept these decisions, the citizens' assemblies are probably still you know an ongoing process, and we will see where where they lead to.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you put that very well. I mean, I I do think, you know, we are, you put it better than I did, I think, we are trying to find a balance between all these different aspects of a democratic system. We're trying to compensate for weaknesses in one part of the system by perhaps introducing new ideas or developing or strengthening other parts of the system. As you say, if representative democracy is weak, well, maybe think about strengthening direct democracy and so on. These are difficult questions, you know, so I think they're very tough questions. There There are, as you've also, I think, suggested, there are important kind of philosophical questions here about the questions of legitimacy. And I think, you know, we're all, again, it's interesting. We're hearing an awful lot about citizens' assembly. The view is that they are legitimate simply because they're a random sample of a population. Now, that's not true at all. A random sample is just a random sample. It has no legitimacy in itself. It couldn't possibly have any legitimacy in itself. It's just a random sample. If you like, it's legitimacy neutral. It doesn't have any... Now. There is no reason, of course, why a democratically elected government could decide to say, well, look we'd like to to constitute an assembly and in fact we're going to act upon its recommendations. So this was something like uh, Macron did for the Citizen Convention on Climate Change in in France. So, and that would be entirely democratic and the assembly itself would have legitimacy because actually the process by which the French president or whoever it is comes to power is itself a legitimate democratic process. And so far as the president, he or she, they're they're working within their constitutional rights. If they have a right to do this and people agree that the constitution is a legitimate constitution, well that legitimacy gets passed on to the, the 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 citizens assembly so in theory there is no problem with giving legitimate or decisional authority to a citizens assembly you can do that you can simply i mean say for example helen landamore in her book simply says that as long as a you know a majority of, of the population agrees that this is a good way to do things well then it's legitimate i don't have any problem with that in in theory but the question is the question which is unaddressed, that is how they may receive their legitimacy Say, for example, a government could, could decide to constitute one. The prior question, however, is whether the government should do that in the first place. That question hasn't been answered. What were the kinds of, why would a government want to do that? Yes, it can, it can ascribe or afford legitimacy to assembly, but should it do it? That's a prior normative question i've already hinted at some reasons why it mightn't want to do it or certainly mightn't necessarily want to do it on something like a permanent basis and that's simply because despite the fact that they may be statistically representative or inclusive the fact is the vast majority majority of us will never ever get the chance to participate in them so there are doubts here as i say it just means that for me democracy is about i've never really thought of myself as a participatory democrat but i guess as i've got a little older it just seemed to me you know what we should all be so far as possible. We, you know, more of us should be participating more often. And I think that's important to the legitimacy of the decisions that come out the far end of the process. So, you know, these questions are hanging in the air right now. It can be done. There is no reason why a government shouldn't create or commission an assembly. And therefore, that, because it's been democratically created, it will be democratically legitimate. No problem. But the, as I say, the prior question still hangs. Should they do that? Or under what conditions should they do it? Or when should they not do it? When does, you know, what are the legitimacy considerations at play here?
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that point. And also there is a parallel to direct democracy in that way that, you know, a top-down referendum is... Uh, a different thing from a bottom-up process, right? And also I have written a blog post on on principles of direct democracy where we describe that actually initiatives should be bottom-up, should come from the population. Because if they're top-down, for example, by the president or, or the prime minister, then they, they are used for agenda setting, right? And it's, again, a tool that is used by power, by the center of power to make people talk about some specific topic. But then the problem is uh, of the agenda setter, almost like a dictator saying what people should talk about and not bottom up. So I think the legitimacy would be way stronger if it came from within the population.
1: I, I mean, that's that's absolutely right. I agree with that. It's a massive issue here. Very often since assemblies, of course, are top down. And one of the reasons why they are top down is because they are incredibly expensive. I can't remember if I mentioned, but early, you know, back in 2007 or so, I worked with uh, Jim Fishkin on a deliberative poll in Northern Ireland on the, the next question of education reform. We spent, now this is 2007, so you're talking 15 years ago, we spent 150000 British pounds on that one-day event. I mean, let that sink in, £150,000. Now, you may say, you know, the grand scheme of things, you know, government budget is whatever, billion. Perhaps this is a drop in the ocean. Yes, that's fine for the government. But if you're talking about bottom-up processes where you want people to kind of mobilize around these kind of things, you have to be very wealthy to actually pull these things off. It's very, very difficult. It can be done, but it's a lot of money. The other thing about them as well that you must remember, let's say you want a bottom-up one. You know, things like, I'm not a statistician. Uh, I have a rudimentary knowledge of statistics. Very rudimentary, I should say. But you must remember the problem is to do these things properly since assemblies, your stats have to be very, very good. If it's not statistically representative, if it doesn't look like the broader population or it's open to criticism on the grounds that you've cut a few corners here or you've missed certain kinds of groups, the problem is the legitimacy of it will be attacked by people who want or who have a vested interest in attacking the outcomes of these kinds of things. So you need a lot of money. You need a lot of expert knowledge to actually create these things and do them well. You need, you know you need a motivated population and that goes back to the legitimacy question because i think the idea is one of the reasons why people would like to see decisional authority decisional power uh, afforded to these assemblies because again it, it may give people more incentive to get involved now say for example in, in deliberative polls people are paid for turning up it's a very small honorarium usually but they are given some money it's also filmed, you know, so for example, the one that we did in Northern Ireland, that was filmed by BBC and made a, and made into a half-hour documentary. So I guess, you know, there's incentive for people to, to participate because, you know, they get their moment in the sunshine. That sounds terrible. You know, I'd like to be on television sometimes, thanks yeah, very much. Yeah, sure. uh, you know, so there are, or, you know, uh, uh, p- parents with healthcare issues or child-wearing and so on. It's important that money is made available that they can actually... Find a carer for the day and participate. So, you know, there's all these, you know, the the practicality is huge. The organization that's required here is huge. But also you must remember if you want government to act, and this is another kind of conundrum here, yes, we want bottom up, but if you don't have government buy-in in the first place, it's not clear why government would be prepared to act in any recommendations that come out the far end. You know, you and I, let's say you and I somehow we find 150 grand. You know, just walking out of the street and we say, you know, this is great. Let's run a citizens' assembly. It'd be fantastic. And we go around knocking on doors and we recruit people. But the government will say, well, you know, you know fair enough, well done, nice and all that. But who are you? Nobody authorized you to do this. So in a way, you know, this is why this is not a part of the story for people in, in, interested in participatory democracy around, you know, protests can be, you know, can often be a far more effective vehicle. I mean, we've seen countless climate citizens' assemblies now. They've done nothing. Nothing has happened. Macron made all these fantastic promises, but he didn't act off the back of any of them. I'm not, you know, I have, you know, things like Extinction Rebellion, you know, that is not straightforward. You know, their behavior isn't straightforward and some of the claims they make isn't straightforward. But at the same time, you have to admire, you know, people getting out into the streets and uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm not counseling or suggesting that we should all engage in civil disobedience. I'm not suggesting that. I am saying that we need to think about these things because sometimes civil disobedience may be what's actually required to bring about effective change. Citizens' assemblies may not deliver on that promise. I don't know. I'm just you know, I'm just putting that out there. I wouldn't want to stand over any of that. But again, there are interesting questions, about. we've been talking about a lot of them. Cost, practicalities, legitimacy, but also effectiveness. How effective are these things? Can they be co-opted by government? You know, oh, look, I heard a citizens assembly. We've listened to the public. We've listened to you. We've heard. We're listening mode. The usual kind of buzz phrases that you hear. So, but actually, they do nothing off the back of them. So the citizens assemblies, the climate assemblies here in the UK have had virtually no effect whatsoever. That's tragic. It is tragic. But it may be because it may be simply because citizens assemblies are new, they're not very much part of our political culture, this background tradition. We're not used to them. There are opinion polls asking people, what do you think of citizens' assemblies? And they go, oh, I love them, they're great. But if you were to stop and ask them what they were, they wouldn't, again, this sounds terrible, but the majority wouldn't know what they were. Anything with the word citizen and power or assembly is, called, is kind of, you know, in people's minds, that sounds great. Yeah, I'll have more of that, please. Thank you very much. But in terms of actually educating people in terms of what they are, and it is, I must say, it's difficult to know what they are unless you've actually been through the process yourself. I must say, working with Jim Fishkin was one of the most insightful things I'd I'd kind of ever done as somebody who'd studied deliberative democracy for many years. You got to see what values like inclusion really meant. Who turned up? What difficulties were there? Values like publicity, things that say, for example, Gutman and Thompson write about quite a lot. What is publicity? Well, you know what it is? It's a camera making a documentary which is broadcast on BBC. That's publicity. And on and on you go. So, you know... It's really only by participating in these things that in a way you I think very often, and I know John Boswell has a very nice piece in the Journal of Deliberative Democracy about this, John Boswell has been studying these things for years as well. But he recently was a participant in one of them in a citizen's assembly. And he's written up his experiences and how actually the experience of participating were very different in many respects to the, the you know what he thought he knew as an academic studying these things for years. So again, you know, there's a, there's a part of this is is education it goes right back to it's a very grand thing to say but right back to primary schools secondary schools and so on we don't know what they are and the difficulty is because the uptake is so poor and because participation numbers are so tiny it's very hard to know how you would educate, educate people into a proper understanding of what they are it's really tricky really tricky
0: so i have still so many questions and thanks a lot for sharing your opinions and 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 also um some of your results from from research and we agree that democracies representative democracies are in crisis right and i think we need to focus on political power <laughs> you know how can we give the people more power and it's definitely a good question to ask what many publics could do in in this regard. But as I think we agree, you know, there there will be a a common solution between representative democracy, direct democracy, and also deliberative democracy, which which is an important element. So for people who want to read up more on on these topics, so obviously I will link to your research website, also your your recent book, Deliberative Democracy, uh, I will link to that. But do you have any other um, resources that you can uh, recommend on on these topics.
1: Well, I mean, in a way, in a way, I've kind of gone blank because there's just so much of it out there nowadays. Really, really, there is just tons of it. I would recommend something, say, for example, looking at Jim Fishkin's website, the Centre for Deliberative Democracy at Stanford. That's well worth looking at. I mean, there's a pile of resources, videos, some of it is academic, some of it is user friendly, a world of resources and a world of links from there. So you could look at something like that. That's a very, very good place to start. So I think something like that, uh, uh, Jim Fishkin's website would be a great place to start. I think there's something you know, there's there is a deliberative democracy handbook edited by I've gone blank it, maybe John Gastel, I think. That's well worth looking at. It's a big, thick user manual in many ways. um um, so you know there's just really there's just so much work i'd point towards somebody like oliver escobar's work at the university of edinburgh uh oliver is a fantastic vibrant clever kind of guy with a real passion for this kind of stuff he's written a whole pile of uh policy papers that would be well worth looking at so maybe maybe somebody like that as well um um my friends at the University of Turku and the the Oboe Academy so I'm thinking Maya Settler maybe her works have a look at some of her work but also Kima Gunland done fantastic work in their their team have done piles and piles of work Uh, Andrew Backdugger's work again have a look at his he's very 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 important I think and uh uh, I've mentioned Helen Landemore much more philosophical but again I think in terms of somebody who's really pushing citizen assemblies beyond that line where I think I would be comfortable but certainly well worth looking at and so on so there's a lot of stuff I'd look at the Centre for Deliberative Democracy at the University of Canberra again loads of working papers so really you know the Journal of Deliberative Democracy would be something I would look at so really there's just I could really kind of go on all day you know looking at
0: this. Thanks a lot for um, sharing all those suggestions and references so yeah
1: apologies for all all the really important people i forgot by the way (laughs) yeah there's always uh, there's
0: always more of course um but i think you definitely mentioned some of the important names yeah ian o'flynn i thank you very much for for taking your time and maybe one uh, last word that i wanted to say was you know like i think representative democracy is not uh, at its best yet (laughs) not at all so i think we need to to focus on that but for sure, deliberative democracy can have a role in both informing representatives, but also the general public, and also maybe Absolutely. be an important complement to to direct democracy.
1: Yeah, I think that's how I that's how I think about it too. Well, thank you very much for inviting me along today. It's been a pleasure to speak to you, and I hope I hope somebody finds this useful. I hope some of your listeners will find it useful and. Um, for, uh, apologies in advance for anyone who i have offended anywhere along the
0: way <laughs> <laughs> no worries I, I i appreciate your you know your honesty and your your opinions that's that's really great that's what i want to have on the podcast and um, yeah yes, thank much. you uh, thank for, you very much for everything speak to you soon.